If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 24, or it'll be page 112 in your scripture journals. We're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 24, the whole chapter together uh, in our time this morning as we continue our series through the book of Exodus. Next week, we're going to cover chapters 25 through 31. So between now and next week, please do read that because we're not going to obviously read that whole thing in our time together next week. So please do read that between now and then. Also, you should have noticed there's a book in your seat or nearabouts. Um, Crossway sent that to us as a gift. And so we want to gift those to you guys as well. So take that with you. Um, That's a free gift from our friends at Crossway. Read that. It'll do your soul some good. And then once you're done reading it, pass it on to somebody else who you think that it'll bless. So please do take a copy with you. Um, But today, Exodus 24 will be together. I imagine that you are there uh, by now. It'll also be behind me on the screen as well. So let's go ahead and read this together. Exodus 24, starting verse 1, we're going to read through the whole chapter. God's word, it says, Then he, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. About 10 years ago, there was a considerable amount of hubbub and controversy surrounding the great hymn by Stuart Townend and Keith Getty called In Christ Alone. The controversy centered on the Presbyterian Church USA. Maybe you know or don't know, there are two Presbyterian denominations in America, two main ones, and this one, Presbyterian USA. They were adding new songs to a new hymnal that they had planned to publish, and they were considering adding In Christ Alone, and why wouldn't they, right? I mean, that song is an incredible hymn that tells the story of the gospel in a pithily kind of way. But there was a problem. See, they liked the hymn for the most part, but there was a lyric in it that they didn't want to publish. The lyric was, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't like that language of God's wrath and it needing to be satisfied due to our sin. They, they thought that idea uh, would have a negative effect on the hymnal's ability, they said, to form the faith of coming generations. So what they wanted to do was simply replace that line and then include the altered song in their hymnal. 
So they reached out to the writers of the hymn, Townend and Getty, and asked, can we replace the line, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, to till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, to which they were promptly turned down. So they didn't include the hymn at all. In the age we live in, it should surprise no one that topics like wrath and a bloody cross are unpopular topics, and even objects of scorn. Paul promised this, right? Even in the modern American church, many don't want to hear that they're sinners, deserving of judgment. Who wants to hear about that? That's unpleasant. Writing an article for TGC about a wrathless cross, Jared Wilson shared a story where he said, a couple years ago I was speaking at a Christian college about the cross, and a young man approached me to inquire about my views about Christ's sacrifice. And he expressed distaste for the idea of a wrathful God. He used words like bloodthirsty and child abuse. For him, there didn't appear to be any room in the cruciform symphony for the penal part of penal substitution. Christ was our substitute, sure, many penal substitutionary atonement deniers say, but he did not receive the wrath of God. My response, says Wilson, is then who does? In pursuit of an atonement that is less bloody, less dark, less offensive, he says, we may be stumbling on one that is less effectual, less powerful, less, well, atoning. The devil loves this development because if he could get us to stop thinking about God's wrath at the cross, he could get us to stop thinking about how our sin is an offense to God, which means he could get us distracted from God's holiness and thus our need for salvation. The cross isn't only about wrath, of course, but if we lose this vital aspect of Christ's atoning work, we lose the very heart of the good news. As we come to Exodus 24 in our journey through this incredible book, we come to one of the most important, and this is not hyperbole, okay, one of the most important scenes in all of the Old Testament. And it's a scene that's covered in blood. Because it's a scene about an atoning God who makes a way for sinners to come near and enter into a covenant with him. According to great thinkers like Augustine and Blaise Pascal and C.S. Lewis, there's an innate desire that's hardwired into all of our hearts that we try and try with all of our might to fill with every conceivable thing on earth. Do you agree with that? Innate desire of our heart. But we remain empty because that innate desire, that missing piece, can only be satisfied by God. We know something is amiss. Deep down, we all know that we are broken. Do you agree with that? We know we need more. And that more that we need is found in God alone. But there's the rub, isn't it? God cannot be found. We need God to be whole, but we can't go out and find God. We can't climb a ladder or build a tower and climb to get to him. We're too sinful. The gap, the chasm, the gulf, it's too great. So how can a relationship be secured between sinful man and a holy God? Exodus 24 shows us much of what needs to occur for man to fellowship with God like he was made to do. And thus, it foreshadows the ultimate move of God in the gospel to bring undeserving man nearer to the great, glorious, and indescribable God of all things. But that requires some things, like a bloody, wrath-absorbing atonement. That might make us uncomfortable, but without them, we'd be lost forever. So let's consider, in our time together, four needs. Okay, this is what I want us to see. Four needs that we have in order to get God and to get fellowship with him, okay? Four needs. Number one, we need God's initiative. We need God's initiative. This scene in chapter 24 is really incredible, isn't it? And it's one that absolutely is soaked in mercy and grace and the loving kindness of God. 
So after giving the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant to the people, God invites Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel as the representatives of the people to come near and to ratify the covenant between him and Israel. And they experience something truly remarkable. They get to get close to God without being incinerated immediately. They get to make offerings and are reminded of the covenant. They get an opportunity to affirm their desire to be in relationship with God of all things. They get to see him in some sense, and they even get to share a meal with him. And it's all utter grace. You notice what it says? Who takes the initiative here? What does verse 1 say? It is God telling Moses what? You come up. It's the invitation. Come up to the Lord and bring Aaron and his sons and 70 elders with you. And for what? So we can fellowship together and reaffirm our covenant vows because I want to be in relationship with you. And this is the pattern we've seen in Exodus so far, isn't it? God taking the initiative. Israel was in bondage and God made a way to rescue them and vanquish their oppressors. Is that true? God called Moses. God sent the plagues. God told Moses what to say to the people and Pharaoh. God parted the sea. God drowned the Egyptians. God led them in cloud and fire. God made bitter water sweet. God sent manna from sky. God gave them the Sabbath to rest. He brought them to Sinai. God invited them to come close. God spoke to them. God gave them the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant so that they would know how to live in relationship with him and one another. And God invites the elders here to come near and ratify their covenant with him. God did God, 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 God. Yes? At what point did the Israelites take the initiative? Tell me. At no point in Exodus. And if it wasn't for God taking the initiative, they would still be in bondage back in Egypt. They would still be victims of racial slavery and backbreaking labor and cruel treatment. They, 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 they could save the, couldn't save themselves. But God saw them, and he loved them, and he made a move after move after move to do what? To bring them into relationship with him. Not because he lacks something, for he lacks nothing, but because he just loves them and he wants them. And this isn't just the pattern in Exodus, it's the pattern of God's initiative is all throughout the Bible. I mean, we're only in the second book of the Bible. And all that you will see, if you go and read Genesis up to this point, is God taking the initiative at every step. God creates Adam and Eve and blesses them before they did one single thing. He called Noah and instructed him on how to live. He called Abraham while he was still an idolater. He called Abraham in a covenant and promised him an inheritance. And on and on and on we could go. The point is this. God always takes the initiative to save wayward sinners. If he didn't take the initial move to seek and save the lost, then guess what? The lost would remain forever lost. Even in our present scene, if God didn't invite them up, they wouldn't have fellowshiped with him at all, especially not in this intimate way, and they would not have entered into this marriage-type covenant with him. Without a move of God's part, there's no rescue, only bondage. There's no relationship, only alienation. This is how deep our sin runs, don't you see? So sinful are we that we not only cannot get to God, we cannot even know how sinful we are without God showing us by his convicting spirit. In his all-time great work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, and you probably heard this quote before, he said, most people, they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it get to give to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I have found in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Experience tells us the things of this earth in themselves will leave us empty. Do you believe that? But coming to that realization... That we were made for another world can only come from God coming to us and showing it to us. Sinful man 
will not chase idols and pleasures and wealth and one day on his own come to the realization that these things will not satisfy no matter how much he gets of it. Instead, sinful man will feel empty but continue to chase the things which don't satisfy because, this is how insidious our sin is, he will think if he just gets more. Right? It's not the stuff. It's that I don't have enough of it. If I just had more, then I'll be truly satisfied. Like a hamster on a wheel, running for miles, going nowhere, but thinking he's made some kind of progress on the journey. That's how insidious our sin is. One of my absolute favorite illustrations on this, talk about our inability to get to God and save ourselves, comes from Kenneth Keithley. He's a professor at the Southeastern Seminary. He's talking about salvation and what we contribute to it. This is what he said. He said, imagine waking up to find you're being transported by an ambulance to the emergency room. It's clearly evident that your condition requires serious medical attention. If you do nothing, you will be delivered to the hospital. However, if for whatever reason you demand to be let out, the driver will comply. He may express regret and give warnings, but he will still let you go. You receive no credit by being taken to the hospital, but you incur the blame for refusing the ambulance. Do you see? God came to Israel. They didn't go to him. God saved Israel. They didn't contribute. God invited them near in chapter 19 and the elders as reps for the people here. They didn't decide to come. In the same way, God came to you. God came to you, you didn't go to him. Jesus saved you, you contribute to yourself, you don't contribute a thing to your salvation whatsoever. You woke up in an ambulance as I woke up in an ambulance, and if you are saved, it's because Christ took you to himself, showed you that you were sick, and healed you by his power and work. Salvation from A to Z is all of Christ, and damnation from A to Z is all of man. The consequences of this realization are deep and profound. Do you realize just how desperately we need God to make the first move to save us? Do you realize? Do we thus realize just how deeply sinful and deserving of judgment we are? Do we realize we have no business on our own of being in fellowship with the God of all things? The meritless grace like this, makes us squirm. It's why we have a hard time with participation trophies, right? Because we don't have a category for meritless grace. We're culturally conditioned to come to God and others with our arms full of accomplishments, aren't we? We carry our resume with us and our name, and our accomplishments, and our titles, and our families, and our possessions, and our wealth, and our record, and our belief that we aren't so bad, or at least not as bad as other people, and we expect God and man should be impressed with us. And that might work for man, but guess what? God's not fooled. But a realization in our hearts that we are so incredibly unable to get to God, so incredibly lost without him, so unaccomplished, religiously speaking, so bankrupt in the economy of what really matters, that it would take the initiative of the God of all things to come to us and make a way and carry us home like an unconscious person on a gurney makes all the difference. Once you get that, you'll be more amazed by grace, right? You'll be more amazed by grace. You'll be more grateful for free forgiveness and more willing to give grace to others and less prone to look down on folks and less prone to hold grudges and more prone to forgive and forget and hold loosely on what you possess. Because while we're building towers of Babel and ladders to heaven, God himself came down and he bypassed the ladder. And he took on flesh to bridge the gap between us and God. We knew we needed God because of God showing us, and we thought we could climb up, but while we were doing so, he decided to come down. Because, point number two, we need a mediator. 
We need a mediator. Not only do we need God to take the initiative, but we also need someone to mediate between us and God. It, that's pretty plain in this text, isn't it? Did you notice that although God invites them to come close, only Moses is to come near. Did you notice that? They all go up, but Moses is the one who gets closest. Then the elders, then the people. So you, you sort of had like these layers of closeness to the presence of the Lord, which foreshadows what we'll see in the tabernacle in the coming chapters. And then in the second scene of this chapter, Moses goes up and the elders and the people, they have to stay at the base of Sinai. There could be no doubt that Moses enjoys a special relationship and closeness with God, right? Like no one else in Israel here nor in all of the Old Testament. It's, it's unique. It's special. No one has experienced more of God and his glory in the Old Testament than Moses. And what we see repeatedly is Moses ascending up the mountain to go to God and then descending down the mountain to go to the people, right? Why? Because when Moses goes up to God, he acts as a representative for the people of Israel. But when he goes down the mountain to the people, he acts as a representative of God to them. This is him fulfilling his role as Yahweh's chosen mediator. Now think back to what we covered a couple weeks ago, right after God gave them the Ten Commandments. You remember? He spoke audibly, giving them the Ten Commandments, and the people were afraid. Do you guys remember that? And they pulled back. They withdrew. And we noted that that kind of fear was the wrong kind of fear. It was a sinful fear and not a right fear because it drew them away from God rather than closer to God. And they said to Moses, Moses, you go and you talk to God for us and you tell us what he says because we're afraid. So while Israel had been wrong in the kind of fear they had, the recognition that they needed a mediator was correct. And Moses' role as mediator is depicted by this continual ascent and descent on Mount Sinai, which enables a dialogue between the Lord and Israel. Just Here's some gee whiz for you, okay? Just in chapter 24 alone, the Hebrew word for ascend appears no less than seven times, 18 verses, <laughs> seven times. And in chapter 19, the word for descend appears no less than seven times as well. The scene, beginning in verse 12, which runs through chapter 31, is especially incredible. God once again does what? He takes the initiative and invites Moses up the mountain. Now let's read verses 15 through 18 again, just as a refresh, okay? Look, look what it says. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day... He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the mountain is utterly covered by the cloud of God's glory. And we're told the glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain and it covered it for six days. And on the seventh, Moses ascended in the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the Lord was like what? Did you notice? <coughs> it was like a devouring fire. It was, it was like walking into a volcano as it blazed. And Moses stayed up there 40 days, 40 nights. And you know that, you know, spoiler alert, because he's up there for so long, you remember what Israel does? Golden calf, right? It was taking so long, let's, he gave up on us, let's build a, a, a new idol, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. But... This is what Michael Morales says. He says, Moses must ascend because the people cannot, else they be consumed by God's holy fire. No less certain, Moses must descend because God cannot, again, else the people be consumed by his fiery glory. Nothing better exhibits Moses' role as Israel's mediator than his continual ascent and descent on Mount Sinai. So when we read him telling us he's ascending and descending, this isn't just for no reason. It shows us He's the mediator for the people. And the need for a mediator is clear. And Moses acts as that intermediary between God and the people. To the people, as we said, he represents God. And to God, he represents the people. And in Exodus, we see that God alone 
Would you agree with this? In Exodus, has showed us that God alone is Savior. Is that true? Is that true? And Moses is the mediator, right? So the people need a mediator and they need a Savior, yes? And what about us? We need a mediator, right? And we need a Savior. And what do we have in Jesus? We have a Savior and a mediator in one. As fully God, he represents the triune God and speaks as God to man. As fully man, he represents man to God, but perfectly. He's the head of the new humanity as a truer and better Adam. He and he alone can both be Savior and mediator. Only Jesus, as fully God, can bear the wrath of God aimed at us. And only Jesus, as fully man, can die as that substitute. In Jesus, we have the perfect, complete, once and for all mediator. You know, if you were to visit Dublin, Ireland, and you went to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, you would see on display this wood door that's from the 15th century, okay? And it's very well preserved, except there's this rectangular hole right in the middle about this big. And the story of how it got that hole is quite fascinating. See, in 1492, there were two prominent Irish families, and they were feuding. They were called the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds. And it was really bitter and bloody feud. And during one of the skirmishes, one of their battles, the butlers decided to take refuge in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they bolted themselves in. (laughs) And they found safety there for a time. Well, the battle outside continued to rage on. But then the the leader of the Fitzgerald, he had a change of heart in the moment. He he decided that enough of this fighting, enough of this feud, enough of this battle. So he went up to the cathedral, he knocked on the door, told the butlers to come out. He said he wanted peace. And understandably, the butlers thought this was a trap, <laughs> as you probably would too. And they, they, they were like, if we come out, we know you're just going to massacre us. We're not coming out. And so you know what Fitzgerald did? He took a spear and he cut a hole in the door and he thrust his entire arm into that hole and he reached his whole arm in there, vulnerable to attack. The butlers could have chopped that thing off if they wanted to, right? But instead, James Butler saw that vulnerability, and he grabbed Fitzgerald's hand in friendship, and the feud was over. And the butlers came out of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they fellowshiped together with their former enemies. In our sinful state, we are at enmity with God. Like Lewis says, we aren't simply in need of improvement, and then everything will be fine. No, we are rebels who must lay down their arms. In ourselves, we are at war with God, and there is a door that stands between us and him. And in the greatest move in history, God himself came down, he bypassed that ladder, he bypassed that tower, he tore through the door, and he reaches his hand through an ultimate vulnerability and humility, and the offer stands before sinful man. Will you grab his hand? in mediatory reconciliation, or where you reject him and allow your separation to remain. We need a mediator, and we need a savior, and praise God, we have both in who? He's the true and better Moses. And what we see in Exodus 24 is a shadow. It's just a shadow of what Jesus will be in the fullness of the promise of Sinai and in even greater theophany than what we see here. So we need... God's initiative, we need a mediator. But third, something else we need huge, we need atonement. We need atonement. Remember what he said in the introduction. This passage is covered in blood. We see Moses and the elders as the representatives of Israel come up as God had invited them, and then Moses tells them again the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant and what it says. He reads it to them. He writes it down. He builds an altar, surrounds it by seven pillars, which represent the 12 tribes. And then they offered a burnt offering, which signifies that they are committed to the Lord and will hold nothing back from him. Then Moses takes blood. What does he do? He throws it against the altar. Why did Moses do that? Because this communicates that the primary need of people, 
is that God should be satisfied. The slaughter of the animals and blood signifies many things, not the least of which is that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, which is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Sin doesn't just go poof, right? It has to be atoned for. And so the blood begins in the direction of the altar to signify God protecting them from his wrath like the blood of the Passover did. And you can, can you imagine being at this scene? This would be, you would never forget this, would you? <laughs> I mean, it would be, be like how they saw the bodies of the Egyptians washing up onto the shore after the Red Sea. They'd never forget what God did there. You would never forget this. They're supposed to smell the blood and, and see it and smell and see the dead animals and think that should be me because of my sin. And thanks to God's graciousness, he accepts the blood of the animals to propitiate their sins and he seals the covenant, but it doesn't stop there, does it? Then Moses reads the Ten Commandments in the Book of the Covenant again. <coughs> and the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now we hear that because we got spoilers, right? We know what Israel will do in eight chapters' time and the rest of their history. But they really do mean this. This is not some kind of legalistic or self-righteous boast on behalf of the people as if they heard all that and thought, oh yeah, I'd keep that perfectly, no problem. Rather, it's simply an acceptance of the covenant terms. And note, the people are willingly entering the covenant here. God is not intimidating them in entering the covenant or forcing them into it. Which, which is why, maybe, verses 1 through 11 even though there's blood, I mean, it's, it's a peaceful scene. It's absent of the fury of the theophany that will appear later on in this chapter. God wants the people to want to enter into the covenant freely, you understand. They could have truly, freely said, no, thank you. But then they would forfeit being God's people. But they would have been free in their choice. Uh, and thinking of this, I was thinking of, during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and after, Rome, uh, you know, was the most powerful military in the whole world, okay? And they had this thing called Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace. Now, what they would do is they'd go to a country that was clearly weaker because they were the most powerful country in the world and they had the biggest military in the world. And they'd come to this country and they'd say, we have a great deal for you. You can submit to us and we will make your country part of our empire, and then we'll protect you. Or you can resist, and we'll crush you, and decimate your people, and kill your king, and you'll still be part of the empire. The choice is yours, right? Let's be honest. That's not much of a choice, is it? <laughs> Their submission to Rome was done peacefully if they didn't resist, but clearly under duress. God isn't doing anything like that here. If the people want to be in relationship with God who sought them and bought them and brought them near, they're being offered that incredible gracious privilege. But if not, then they could certainly choose that. But, but when you have the kind of encounters that Israel has had with God so far, not only does free acceptance make sense, so does saying we will obey. That's the correct response to grace. But then what do we see? We see Moses take the blood, and then what does he do with it? He throws it on the people, right? And says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. And here's some more gee whiz for you. This is the only place in all the Old Testament where the blood is thrown on a congregation. Only place. And it's only one of three places in the Old Testament where blood is applied to a person. Why throw the blood on the people? Because it would, one, be a vivid reminder of the source of their forgiveness, which is God's mercy and the shedding of blood. And two, it would communicate that the people are saying, in essence, if we don't keep the covenant, our blood is required. In other words, it would be to say, if I don't keep the covenant, may my blood be shed in the same way. And three, it would communicate that the people are to be one blood with the Lord, sharing the same life 
and belonging to the same family with him. Kind of like marriage ceremony and saying that we are now one family. We are one blood in some sense. Israel is God's bride and he is their bridegroom and they are a family agreeing to fulfill the covenant out of love and devotion. But again, we're reminded that for us to get God, blood is required. Sin separates people from worshiping with the, and fellowshipping the holy God. If Israel is to leave Egypt, thousands of spotless lambs must die and their blood must be smeared on the doorposts. If Israel is to enter into covenant with the God of all things here, some animals have to die and their blood must be thrown into the altar. It must be thrown Godward and then it must be sprinkled on them. That's the price of sin. Blood. You want God? Something must die. That's what sin has done. It's death. In Eden, God told our first parents, if you eat this tree, eat from this tree that I forbid, you will surely die. And then the serpent comes up and what does he say? You will not surely die. And they took and they ate and they sinned. Did they surely die? Yes, they did. Because that sin caused separation from their God. That's death. Sin isn't the light and relatively harmless thing that we moderns tend to make it. In a culture where everything is relative and truth is whatever you make it, sin sounds like some obscure idea from a bygone era intended to keep you from being your true self. And I'm sure Satan is thrilled with such conceptions because if you aren't a sinner or if sin isn't so bad, what do you need God for? What do you need Jesus for? What's the answer? You don't. But the truth is, you're a sinner deserving of the full wrath and judgment of God. And I'm a sinner deserving the full wrath and judgment of God. And no matter how much we want to convince ourselves we aren't so bad, and no matter how much we want to convince ourselves our neighbor is somehow worse, and no matter how much our society wants to convince itself that sin is actually something that is supposed to be celebrated and embraced, we can't escape the facts. And no matter how much convincing we want to do, we know deep down there's something really wrong. Don't we? And we turn on the TV, and we know something is really wrong. And we open social media, and we know something is really wrong. And we chase our pleasures and our titles and our wealth and our prestige and our names and our acceptance from others. But we know, deep down, God is neither impressed nor appeased. Moses knew blood would be required to enter into this covenant. And he prepared. And he built an altar. And he slaughtered animals. And he collected their blood. And he chucked some on the altar, which represented God. And he threw it on the people, which represented their cleansing. And it was only then that they could draw near to God in fellowship. And we know we need God, but we know what we do won't work. Even if we try with all of our might, even if we had a thousand lifetimes to do it, and more importantly, God knew that wasn't going to work either. And so, he dis do you see the beauty of the gospel? He descended the mountain. And not only was he mediator and savior, but he was, his saving required that he be the sacrifice itself. And only a truly spotless lamb could be an offering for sin, a true substitute for the sin of fallen man. Only the God-man could be a once and for all sacrifice. Only this beautiful, perfect, holy, eternally pre-existent creator could atone for you and me. That's how sinful we are. If sin weren't so bad, why would it take the death of God in flesh to atone for it all? Kent Hughes said, we need to invite 
the horror of the crucified Christ, its blood and glistening bone and swirling insects to assault our hearts with that reality so that our hearts might respond and say, this is how I'm loved. So sinful are we that it took nothing less than the death of God in flesh to atone for us, to reconcile us to him. But so loved are we that God was glad to do it. And guess what? He did it all by his own initiative. This is how much he wants you. Do you realize that? And you. Does that not move you? He did that for you. Can you believe it? Once and for all, paid in full. No need for repeated sacrifice like Israel did. He did it all fully and finally. Tell me these glorious truths don't do something to your heart. So you know what? Folks could keep their bloodless half-gospels and the wrathless trinket crosses. Give me the true gospel which says I am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, I am more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than I ever dared hope. Which is why I'm happy to sing and say, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. I am his and he is mine. I am bought with the precious blood of Christ. But wait, there's more. We need God's initiative. We need a mediator. We need atonement. And we need point number four, heaven and earth to meet. We need heaven and earth to meet. Notice that God follows the blood ritual and the people's entering into the covenant with something else that this is truly remarkable. He invites Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders up and they see God and they share a meal. Is this not incredible? (laughs) And they share a meal with God on the mountain. But hold on, you say. Won't we be told later in Exodus that no one can see God and live? Won't we be told that? So how is it that they beheld God? Well, what these elders likely saw was either some sort of local manifestation of the Lord, like a theophany or maybe a silhouette, or like verse 10 says, they saw God's feet as he stood on something like a pavement, which was like, do you see what it says? The very heavens for clearness, which itself is not very clear about what that means, right? Robert Alter, he wrote a three-volume translation of the Hebrew Bible, and he gave commentary, and he says this in verse 10, about verse 10. Mere flesh and blood cannot long sustain the vision of God. And so the visual focus immediately slides down to the celestial brilliance beneath God's feet. Even for this zone touched by the divine, direct linguistic reference is not possible. And so the writer uses double simile, like a fashioning of, like the very heavens. So we don't know exactly what Moses and the people saw, which you could tell, can't you, by the way, Moses repeatedly uses the word like. It's as if he's struggling, right? Like he's struggling to describe what he's seen, which that's pretty understandable, isn't it? I imagine, for example, let's illustrate it. The most beautiful place you think, I want you to think about the most beautiful place in nature you've ever visited, okay? Say it was like Grand Canyon or Niagara or something like that. For me, I think of, there's, there's a place that comes to my mind immediately. is when we lived in Alaska, right after I got back from Iraq, uh, my brother came and visited, and so we, we just one day we loaded up in the car, we drove south a ways, and we went to this place that was especially scenic, because it was, it was flanked on both sides by the mountains. And when I say, by, I mean, like, it wasn't like they were in the distance, they're like right there. And in the middle is this beautiful, clear, blue water from the inlet. And we get out, and we walk a little bit of ways, and we find this spot that's right at the water, and it had these like giant rocks that were smooth, and it was like it was almost like they were designed to be sat in. And, and it was just an incredible place to be. And I think of this place, and I think, how would I describe this to someone who had never been anywhere like that, a place anywhere like that? And what if I didn't have a camera 
to show them. I would struggle. It, it, it wouldn't do it justice, that's for sure, right? You ever show somebody a picture of a place that you've been to and you're like, this doesn't do it justice at all? <laughs> you've, you've had that experience? You think, imagine if you went to Niagara Falls, which some of you might have been to, and you didn't take a picture, and you tried to describe it to someone who had no, Niagara Falls, I've never heard of her, right? Like, you try to describe it to them, they have no knowledge of it, how would you do it? What would you say? Well, you, you would use words like, like, a lot, wouldn't you? Just to try to grab hold of something, to compare it to, you'd have a hard time. Well, imagine Moses being up on this mountain, and you're in God's very presence, and you look up into the floor of heaven. You'd say something like, there was God's feet, but he doesn't have feet, but people would understand if I said feet, and there was like this pavement, and it was, it was so blue, it was like, I don't know, sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness of purity, like looking up to a blue sky on the clearest, bluest day you can imagine. I mean, <coughs> what's happening here is beyond description. It's incredible. And what's happening here is very, very, very significant. And it feeds directly into what comes next in chapters 25 through 31 with the building of the tabernacle. What's happening? Here's what's happening. This is furthering the biblical narrative of God having a people for his possession that he will dwell with, who will spread his rule throughout the earth. That's the whole point of the Bible. Did you know that? But it also does something related to this, which is it causes heaven and earth to meet. That's what's happening here. Heaven and earth are meeting at Sinai. And in Eden, we had a temple garden that was on a mountain with the very presence of God, right? You know the story. It was ruined by sin, but God will not be deterred from his plan. So here in Exodus, we have heaven meet earth at Sinai. And the people enter into a blood covenant to atone for sin, and then they're invited to see the feet of God standing on something like the very heaven for clearness. Heaven is meeting earth in 24, 12 through 18. And it introduces a section that will run through chapter 31 regarding the tabernacle, which is, guess what? A mobile recreation of the top of Sinai, where heaven meets earth and Eden, where God intended to dwell in the midst of his people like he said he would. Then God will lead the people, you know the story, to the promised land, which remember is not, the purpose of that is not so that they could occupy some piece of real estate. It's so he could dwell with his people on a mountain. And they will build a temple, and what will he do? He will dwell among them there. But you know the story. <laughs> they fail. So God sends them into exile like he did to Adam and Eve. But he's so full of grace and mercy and loving kindness, he brings a remnant back, and they build a second temple where he dwells with them. And then what happens? They fail again. But God's created purpose and plan will not be thwarted. The plan all along in eternity's past was actually for God to take on flesh and dwell among us and be and do everything Israel failed to be and do. And so in the fullness of time, says John, the word was made flesh and he tabernacled among us. We can see his glory, the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Heaven meet earth in the person of Jesus. And he offers, through his perfect blood, wayward sinners to come close to God. And he invites them to a meal. A meal whose institution, you know, it sounds a little like Exodus 24, when Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And once we're sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ, he draws us near, he takes up residence in our hearts, and it's like heaven meeting earth. And when we gather like this with the saints, the Spirit of God is among us. And when we sing the truths of the gospel together, our song joins in the chorus of heaven that exists at all times around the throne, and heaven meets earth again. What a privilege. And all of history is pointing to the day when Jesus will close out the age and heaven will meet earth fully and finally in the new heavens and new earth. And guess how that's commenced? With a supper. 
with a family meal with all of the redeemed of all time from every tribe and tongue and people and language and in the full presence of the triune God whom we will dwell with in a perfect creation forever and ever in a truer and better Eden, the truer and better Sinai, the truer and better tabernacle, the truer and better temple. Friends, is Exodus 24 not utterly soaked with the gospel? Can you see it? Is it not soaked in grace? And is it not pointing to something that's even better? And because of the incredible truths that it's pointing to in Christ, we can look at the bloody cross and hear God saying, you have seen what I have done. And the only logical response to such ridiculous grace and mercy is to say from our hearts, we will do all that the Lord has said, we will obey, and it will be our delight to live for such a glorious king and for his fame for all of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. We thank you for the deep truths that are found within. Even in the time we spent together today, I barely touched the hem of the depths of this text. We thank you for this incredible word. We thank you for what it reveals to us. It's such an amazing scene. But even as amazing as it is, it's just a shadow pointing to Jesus. And in him, we see everything from Exodus 24 and eternally more. Please help us remember what we talked about this morning, that we are in need of you to take the initiative, and you did. We're in need of a mediator, and you sent the perfect one. We are in need of atonement, and we have it in the perfect blood of Christ. We are in need of heaven meeting earth, and that's what Jesus did, and that's what he points to. And God, as we gather today, we could tend to get into habits and rhythms and, and coming to the Sunday gathering. Well, that's not a priority sometimes. We've got other things going on. It's okay to miss a lot. But God, help us to see what a privilege that when we gather, it's not just some social club, but that it's heaven meeting earth because your spirit is among us, this very spirit of God that dwelled on top of Sinai, that dwelled in the tabernacle, that dwelled in the temple, dwells in each of us and among us. And when we sing, our voices, we sing to one another, but we also, it extends skyward into heaven itself. What an incredible privilege. Help us remember our desperate need for grace. And just to remember how sinful we are, but not to dwell on that, but to let it spring us into amazement at the gospel of glory. To behold Jesus and his glory and his beauty and be changed by it forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.